Hello there, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. And today we're doing a lesson in our series that we're doing on basics of Christian living and uh, things that Christians really need to know and to grow. Uh, one of the important things about Christianity is we, our relationship with Christ. And to have a relationship, you need to communicate. And one way we communicate with God is through prayer. And another is to listen to what God tells us through his word, his holy word. So how do you do this? How do you do a Bible study? And there's a really simple way of doing it. I mean, there's many ways you can do a Bible study. There's literally probably a hundred different ways of doing a Bible study. When I used to teach a class on how to do Bible studies uh, for college students, I would do about 13, sometimes even up to 18 different styles of Bible study. But this one I'm going to show today, and we're going to talk about in this one, this one's really, really simple. It's um, the who, what, where, when, why, and how um, style of Bible study. And you're simply just asking those questions. You, you just take a short passage. You don't have to do a whole chapter. You just take a, a short passage, let's say a parable or a teaching of Jesus or some event that takes place in the Bible. And what you want to do is, as you read it, you just don't read it as a novel, but you read it and you look for the who's, you look for the the hows, the whens, the whys, the wheres, um, those kind of questions, the whats, and you answer those questions as you do this. And it's a phenomenal way of doing a Bible study. And we have this, I think, uh, in some other lessons on our website about doing, it's called the five W's and the H um, Bible study method. And it's one that's very, very simple. And so I'm going to walk you through one of these today. And the passage that I chose is a paragraph in the ancient manuscripts. Now, it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can follow along if you wish with your Bibles or if you're sitting in a small group or whatever. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Now, the interesting thing about this, this um, parable is I believe it's the most misunderstood parable in the entire Bible. I mean, there's parables in the Old Testament, there's parables in the New Testament. Jesus was a parable teacher. That was a prophecy from the book of Psalms that of how you would identify the Messiah when he comes. He would be a parable teaching Messiah. So Jesus taught with parables frequently. Um, but when you examine um, different parables, this one, I mean, even VeggieTales did a thing on this. I'm the parable of Good Samaritan with the pots and stuff. But the thing is, that is not what this parable is about. But as we do a Bible study, and in and, and this case here, what, and I'm, I'm mentioning this in particular because this, par, this, this Bible study is, what I said, is one paragraph. This paragraph begins at, at verse 25 and proceeds all the way through verse 37. Now, I just want to take a note here for just a moment. If you have your Bible open, and if you're sitting in a small group or if you have some other Bibles um, sitting around different translations, I want you to count how many paragraphs there are from verse 25 to verse 37. And just take a look and see how many paragraphs. Um, now, I'll tell you, with the different translations, just to mention a few of them, in this paragraph, um, in the ancient manuscripts, well, it's, it's verse 25 through 37. It's one entire paragraph. But the uh, NLT Bible, the New Living Translation, it's broken up into nine, nine different paragraphs. The NIV that I have here um, has it as broken up into seven individual paragraphs. 
The New King James has it in two. Even the English Standard Bible has it in two. The God's Word translation does contain it in one complete paragraph, as does the old traditional King James Version, uh, the authorized version. It too has it as one paragraph. And if you have a New American Standard, if you look in New American Standard, um, an, an older one in particular, you will see that verse 25 is bold printed as compared to the other ones, indicating that this is the beginning of a new paragraph. That's the one really unique thing that I love uh, of many, um, but the thing I love the most about the New American Standard, it tells you when you have an individual paragraph starting in the ancient manuscripts. And now you might be wondering, why am I making such a big deal about this, about how many paragraphs there are? Let's just get to the story. No, now there is a very important reason for this. As you all know, you can take any type of heresy, anything false about the Bible, and if you search diligently enough, you can probably find a verse that will back up your heresies. Um, heretics have been doing this for years, uh, for centuries. And the thing is, when people come up to me and they often ask me, like, here, Michael, I don't understand this verse. And they give me the verse reference and they say, can you explain this to me? Well, if I just take the verse by itself, I don't know what the context is. So I can easily take things out of context that way. So what I, just to give you a little clue, what I normally do is I go to an, my interlinear Bible, which uh, we've talked about um, in our series on the different translations, and interlinear is showing the uh, Hebrew and the Greek of the oldest manuscripts. And so you can see how, um, where the paragraphs are. But the New American Standard, the New American Standard Bible, particularly the older versions, they bold printed certain verse numbers indicating from the ancient manuscripts when a new paragraph began. Now, hope you can see where I'm going with this. If you just take a verse at random out of the Bible, you don't know where it's at in a paragraph. So you need to know what, what paragraph this thing is sitting in. Now, we gotta take you back to like middle school English here. You see paragraphs, when you write paragraphs, and this is true today, but it goes back in, even into ancient times, that the first sentence of a paragraph is called the thesis sentence, or depending upon where you went to school, it might be called the topic sentence. What that means is every single sentence following that opening sentence of the paragraph pertains to that first sentence, that topic or thesis sentence. When it no longer applies, the sentences you're writing no longer apply to that topic sentence, you begin a new paragraph. Thus, when a person comes up to me and they says, can you explain what this individual verse means? Well, I want to know, first of all, before I will answer them, what is the paragraph? So I'll, I'll look very quickly. I can pull this up on my phone or if I have my Bible handy with me, I'll look it up in a New American Standard or my interlinear and I'll see where that verse sits inside of a paragraph. Once I find out what paragraph it's in, I go up to the thesis sentence of that paragraph because now that tells me what that verse is pertaining to. This is so important because this is how you keep the verses in context. This is how you keep the, the thoughts behind things in context. If you take a normal paragraph, say like the parable of the Good Samaritan, and which is one parable starting at verse 25, going to verse 37, but if you break it up into 
uh, seven, nine, or even one translation has it as 11 individual paragraphs, you have totally lost the topic or the thesis sentence. Thus, you have lost the meaning of what all those verses mean. That's why it is so important. I should get a commission for all the times I have taught people and told them to go out and get a New American Standard Bible. But it is so important to get a New American Standard Bible, an older one that shows the bold printed wor uh, numbers of the verses. Because and it'll tell you in the preface uh, of that Bible that they are marking the beginnings of the old manuscripts. Now you might be wondering, but isn't that modern? Like having paragraphs and stuff? No. Um, back in the, uh, uh, just a few years ago, they uh, finally were able to, um, to read a scroll that was found in, in Getty, um, over in Israel. In, in Getty, they found a synagogue back in the 1970s, and they found a burned up scroll, still rolled up, of the book of Leviticus. Uh, they couldn't unroll it in the 70s, but just about five, six years ago, um, they were able with technology to make photographs of it and actually um, see what all the writing was in there and then take these, um, these special type of photographs out and they can read the entire book that's there of Leviticus from this ancient scroll that dates back to like into the second century uh, AD. And the thing is, it's the book of Leviticus and you compare the paragraphs in that with the paragraphs um, that we have in a New American Standard, you will see they're the exact same. Thus, paragraphs are very important, not just in the way that we write English and write books and stuff today, but it's also so imperative to give us the context of the meaning of God's Word. So, as we look at this, this parable, and we're going to use the who, what, when, where, why, and how, I'm going to read this out of the um, New American Standard Bible. And as I read this, you follow along with me, but I want you to take Clear note when we begin, what is the thesis sentence of this very familiar, very familiar parable? Is this about how to be a good neighbor? Or is there something else there? Let's read it. So, as we begin, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him 
and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers' hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So that is the parable. That is one paragraph, just one paragraph. Now, here we go. Let's begin. First of all, let's identify what, as we look for the who, what, when, where, why, and how, what is the thesis statement? What's the thesis of the topic sentence? And go back to the very first sentence, verse 25, a lawyer, now some translations will say an expert in a Jewish law. This is a person who is a scribe. He's an expert. He, he is a person that um, they would use in ancient times, at the time of Jesus, they would use these people who are experts in the Old Testament, who, who practically memorized most of the Old Testament, had it memorized, and they would apply it in, in cases of dispute. So he's a lawyer. And it says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's your thesis statement. So what's this parable about? Is it about how to be a good neighbor? No. Is it about... Um, you know, the different animals or having a pot on your head or whatever? No. What was the question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Thus, every sentence now following in this whole story, in all these verses, pertain directly to that question. Jesus is answering that question with this parable. Isn't it interesting? I find it interesting anyway. Isn't it interesting that the um, Jesus could have explained this in so many different ways, but he chose this parable. Now remember, Jesus is God, and he has multiple ways of doing things. Nothing is impossible, and he teaches in so many different areas, in so many different ways, so many different aspects of life in different ways. Yet, to answer the question on how to have eternal life, he goes to this. This is how he does it. I find that just absolutely amazing. Thus, everything here is important. Now, I must remind you too, Jesus was a Jew and he's speaking to a Jew. And so you've got to sort of put in your mindset sometimes when Jesus is teaching and stuff um, and, and the, the gospels um, and what you read in the gospels in the New Testament a lot of times, it's having to do with first century Jewish thinking. Um, many of the passages are like that. Now, Paul would sometimes write things for Gentiles and, and, and stuff. And, um, but the, the primary way of thinking as you read your Bible is, you know, the, the Jewish perspective, particularly in the Old Testament. Look at the Jewish perspective on things. Now, the question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How does Jesus answer it? Now, this is really interesting. So what did Jesus say? It says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So he answers a question with a question. Jesus does this frequently. Uh, answers a question with a question. What's written in the law? Now, he's an expert, a lawyer. He's going to know this. And he does. He gives the correct answer. Even Jesus um, honors him by saying, yes, you answered correctly. But what's his answer? He says, um, it's, it's the Shema. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 from the Torah and Leviticus 1918. Those are the passages he quotes. So what is it? 
is, we'll go back to verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the Shema. Now, the thing is, those are the two most important commandments. Jesus is later asked, what's the two most important commandments? And he tells them these. Um, he answers this. And this is the Shema. This is what uh, even uh, many Jews to this day, still in the morning, this is the first words out of their mouth at nighttime. It's the last words they will utter um, in public before they, they go to bed and stuff. It's very, very important to them. And the thing is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, just look at that first part. That's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. But those four parts, what, what do those four parts mean? Well, it goes back to the actual sacrifice that people would bring when they would come into the temple or the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice to God. They would take the lamb and they would divide the lamb into four sections. Notice there's four parts here. There were four sections that the lamb would be, um, for an offering, would be put onto the altar to be sacrificed. And the first one's your heart. Well, you can figure out what are you sacrificing to God. You see, when you take the lamb, the priest would take your hands and place your hands on the lamb. Thus, the lamb um, becomes you, in a way. That's You're transferring yourself to this lamb symbolically. And then the priest will take this lamb and he'll skin it and he'll cut it open. He'll drain the blood first, but then um, he'll take the, the skin and things will be discarded and the Levites will carry that out to the garbage dump. The priest will then divide the lamb into four parts. He'll cut out the heart and throw it on to the altar. What does the heart represent? Here's a what question. What does the heart represent? Well, just think, what does the heart represent today? Think of Valentine's Day. We often use the heart as a symbol of emotion. That's where it goes back to. This is the symbol of emotion. Thus, you're sacrificing to God your emotions. It says to sacrifice to God uh, with all your soul. Now, this one's hard for Westerners to understand, but in the Eastern culture, the soul was represented by the fat. Fat is an insulator. It's very important for the body. It, it's very necessary. It cushions organs. It regulates your body temperature, uh, et cetera. And around the kidneys, there were large sections of fat that would be found, and they would pull this out, and they would throw this onto the, the altar, and they would sacrifice that too. So what does this mean? What is the meaning of the fat? As I say, it's really hard to understand unless you understand the Jewish culture. In Eastern culture, fat represented your soul. I know it's hard for us in this Western society to catch this one, but that's what it is. It's very important. You don't live without this. Um, fat is so necessary, and it insulates and is found all through your body, but it's collected in certain areas, and that represents your soul. Thus, you're sacrificing to God your soul. Then it says, with all your strength. The priest would take the animal uh, that represents you and cut it, uh, cut the limbs off, all four limbs, and they would throw the limbs onto the altar. Now, what's in these limbs? There's, a skeletal, there's skeletal bones and there's skeletal muscle. That represents movement. The animal moves, the animal does things by using the skeleton and skeletal muscles. Thus, to give the Lord, sacrifice to the Lord all your strength means your behavior. Everything that you do, every single thing you do. Think right now, if you're sitting and writing with a pencil, are you not using skeletal muscles? 
If you're taking a sip of a cup of coffee or of tea, are you not using skeletal muscle to do it? Even if you point your finger at somebody or, or whatever, or if you're picking up a, 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 a fork to take a bite of steak or something, you're using these muscles. So it's roughly meaning you're sacrificing to God, not just your strength, but all of your behavior. And then the last one, they would cut off the head of the animal and throw it onto the altar also. Of course, the mind is there. And of course, that goes back to what this lawyer and what's found in the, um, the Shema says, you sacrifice to God your mind, your thoughts. Thus, when you sacrifice to God, what we're supposed to do is sacrifice to God all of our emotions, our soul, all of our behavior, and all of our thoughts. If we could sacrifice that to God, we're practically sinless. But there's one more point that the scribe correctly answered. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. So to love your neighbor as yourself, that was part of the law, the charity. God loves us. We are supposed to love others in the same way that God loves us. So we're supposed to be this way. So he answers this question. Now, this is important. What does this have to do with the answer for uh, the question dealing with eternal life. The thing is, if you can do this, if you could do the Shema and this neighbor part, those two sections alone, you're perfect. If you're perfect, you have eternal life. Problem is, none of us are. There's our problem. Um, so none of us qualify. And this lawyer, we're going to see as we keep reading this, he wants to justify himself. He said... Um, well, Jesus tell, told him in verse 28, you answered correctly. Yeah, if you do this, you'll live. If you're perfect, you have no sin, you have eternal life. But of course, none of us are. And this lawyer realizes, even though he is thinking he's keeping all of these laws, he now, as it says, tried to justify himself. So deep down, he knows he's not perfect, that there's something not quite right. And he says to Jesus this, he's trying to justify himself. And he goes into this neighbor part because he's obviously he's really thinking that I must, if I have anything lacking, it's probably in that aspect of charity. But Jesus answers, and now we go into, and this is what's so cool. It's not starting a new paragraph. We're in the same paragraph. It's the same thesis sentence. How do you get eternal life? Jesus launches into this beautiful story. Now, let's just go through this and take a look again at how Jesus answers this. Let's take this one at a time as we go through this story now and see. And what I want you to do is concentrate on the who's and the what's and the where's and the how's and the when's. And as we do this, you're going to see some really interesting aspects. Now, remember, too, think the way this lawyer, who is a Jewish expert, would be thinking about the way Jesus answers his question. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, who is the man? Who does the man represent? That's a key question in this. Jesus doesn't, you know, he could have used any illustration to do this, but this is what he does. He uses a man going down from Jerusalem, which sits high on a mountain, Mount Moriah, that's where Jerusalem sits on the side of a mountain, down to Jericho. It's 17 miles, and it's a very windy 
road going from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho. And along the way, there's all sorts of pits and caverns and cliffs and things like this as you're going down to Jericho, which is the lowest city on the planet. And as you go down this, it was a, a frequently traveled road, but because of all the crevices and caves and, and twists and turns and uh, so such of the, the geography there, if you pick up an atlas and you start looking at this, um, and a Bible atlas, you'll see that there's places that people could easily, robbers in particular, could hide. Matter of fact, there's many writings of ancient times talking about how robbers often frequented that road in particularly because it was um, so easy to hide and ambush people as they were going. But it says a man was going down from Jerusalem. Now, we want to know who this man is. And then we see something happening to the man. It says he fell among robbers. Okay, ask the question again, who? Who are the robbers? Well, what do the robbers do? They strip him. They beat him to the point that he's dead, like unconscious. He, he's stripped naked. He's lost everything. Everything he possessed is gone. Now, can you start to figure out who these people are? The man, now remember the question is, how do I get eternal life? The man started off with no problems. As he's traveling and walking down the road, he's, he's clothed, obviously, and he has money because the robbers take it. So he is doing just fine. Then all of a sudden he falls into robbers. The robbers, it's like Satan and his demons. Satan attacks the man. The man represents us. At the beginning, when God created, man was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. There were no sin. They had, they had no worries or anything. They were like the man walking. And to us, we represent this man. We now have been attacked by Satan, and Satan has robbed us of what rights, what, what we own and everything. And how has Satan left us today? in a state of perishing. We're dying, spiritually dying, even physically dying because of what Satan did. He robbed us. He robbed God too of his creation. He robbed us. So the man is us. The robbers are Satan. So the man is beaten up. And now what's the condition of man? It says they stripped him, they left him half dead. The guy is dying. What is our spiritual condition today? We're dying. Why? Satan has taken stuff from us. He has robbed us of what we were intended from God to have. Satan robbed us. He beats us up. He uses all sorts of misery, anguish, disease, and evil around us, and he beats us up, and he leaves us lying in a dying condition. That's the condition that all of us, including this lawyer, was in at that time. We all need eternal life. We don't have it. We're dying. So what's the next thing that Jesus talks about? He says that a priest, a priest, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, this is an important thing. Again, you got to think Jewish. you got to think what does a priest represent to a Jew? Well, where do you find priests? Priests are found in the tabernacle or in the temple. That's, they're the ones doing the sacrifices and stuff. They're the, uh, the in-between, between the fallen man and God himself. But what does, what's found in the tabernacle? What do the priests carry? What do the priests do? 
they teach the what? The Word of God. They're where the scrolls are. The Ten Commandments are in, um, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple. The priests are the ones that are there. So to a Jew, in first century particularly, the, Jew, uh, the Jews would see a priest and think the law. The law. That's what a priest represents. Priests represent the law of God. Now, here's the question. Remember, this is a parable about eternal life. Did the law save the man? No. The law passed by. It did not save him. So what's this saying? Can keeping the law save you? No. The law cannot save you because we're dying. And nobody can keep the law. It's impossible for us. So the law did not save the fallen man. Who's the next person who comes by? The next person says in verse 32, likewise, a Levite. Also, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. Well, the Levite didn't save him, but what's a Levite represent? Now, this is an interesting question I've asked many times. What does a Levite represent um, to a Jew? Well, what were the job of the Levites? Levites and uh, priests are both descendants of the tribe of Levi from of that tribe. Now, to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron, who was a Levite. But Levites were not, uh, when we say Levites, these are not descendants of Aaron. They were just descendants of, of Levi. And so they had special roles of God. When, when they came into the promised land, they were not given, during the time of Joshua, they were not given any plot of land. They were given only a few cities to live in that were scattered all through the land but they were not given land. And what their job was, if you go back and you read, they're the temple workers. They're the ones who clean the temple, the temple or the tabernacle. Um, who sweeps the floor? It's not the priests, it's the Levites. Who carries wood in for the sacrifice, for the altar? It's not the priests, it's the Levite. Who carries out the ashes afterwards and cleans it and takes the ashes out? It's not the priest, it's the Levite. Who takes the skins of the animals and the discarded parts that aren't used in the sacrifice and takes them to the dump? It's not the priest. It's the Levite. Who sweeps the floor in the temple? It's the Levite. Do you understand what, to a Jew, what the Levite represents? It represents works. Now, here's the question. Let's go back to the thesis statement here. How do you get eternal life? Did works save the man? No. Thus, what's this telling us? You cannot be saved by doing good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul just tells us in verse 10 that we're saved uh, to do good works. He tells us in verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace. And in verse 10, he tells us we're saved to do good works, but we're not saved by good works. That's the result of being saved. The whole point here, the law did not save. So trying to keep, trying to be good and follow all of the commands, you're not going to be able to do it. Just like this lawyer, he thought he was, but he, he couldn't, and he wasn't. He knew he needed to be justified somehow. The law did not save. Works did not save. Thus, we come to the next part. The third person to come by um, now is a Samaritan. And it says in verse 33, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Well, let's stop here for a second. What in the world is a Samaritan? How many times I've talked and explained this parable to people, and people have always asked me, what, as they ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how, what is a Samaritan? 
And why is Jesus using the Samaritan? Well, this is interesting. You got to go back into the Old Testament to understand this. If you recall, David and Solomon ruled, um, which you'll see in um, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, they ruled the land, all of the 12 tribes. But after Solomon's death, Rehoboam, his son, um, had a coup take place, was led by a man named Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I leads a coup against King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The country splits. Two tribes stay, Benjamin and Judah, stay loyal to Rehoboam and the descendants of David. The other 10 tribes, called the Northern 10 tribes, they formed a new country. So it was a civil war that took place. And they developed a new country. It's sometimes in the Old Testament, it's called often um, Israel, where the Southern Kingdom was called Judah. It is sometimes called Ephraim in some prophecies and stuff. They refer to it and they call it Ephraim, the Northern uh, Kingdom there. Most often it's called Israel. There's even a, a couple of times it's called Samaria in the books of uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that they call it Samaria. The capital of that city, or of that nation, was the city of Samaria. Now, what happened was, these people had rebelled against God. Jeroboam set up idols, and they started worshiping idols. They started intermarrying with others and stuff, and eventually, in 722, the Assyrians come down and they conquered the northern kingdom. And the, the Assyrians, imported other people from other nations and put them into that land and they started intermarrying with them. So they were like half Jewish and um, or half Hebrew and half Gentile. So they're half breeds, if you will. And that's the way they continued up to this day. There are still Samaritans. I, I'm, I think I looked up on a um, world census about a year or so ago and there were a couple of hundred still, um, still listed as Samaritans still living in the world. You recognize them. You can find them on YouTubes and stuff. They wear white robes, and they still go up to Mount Gerizim where they will do sacrifices and stuff like the Old Testament-style sacrifice. But these, these half-breeds of the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Samaria, what they ended up doing is they discarded all of the Old Testament except the Torah, the first five books, and they intermarried. And they sort of changed a lot of religion. They let these new nations come in, uh, these other nations, and they interbred with them, and they brought in their gods and stuff. So they were not totally dedicated to God. And that's who this person represents. Um, this is a Samaritan. He's from the north. Now, at the time of Jesus, you hear this term being used and applied to Jesus frequently as a derogatory term. They'll often call him, oh, you demon uh, demon-possessed Samaritan. Well, Jesus was not a Samaritan. He's a descendant of King David. And so he is not a Samaritan. But, I mean, he was even born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea. But where did Jesus live the majority of his life? Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? If you look at an Old Testament map, it's a, it, the city wasn't called Nazareth in the Old Testament days, but there was a city right by Nazareth in the Old Testament called Gath-Hefer. What was who any what do we know about Gath Heifer? Gath Heifer was where Jonah was from, the prophet Jonah. And there's a lot of similarities. If you ever read the book of Jonah, oh my gosh, we have a whole series on that. How Jonah is so in so many ways symbolic of Christ. So anyway, he's from Gath Heifer, which is right by where modern Nazareth is today. It's the same area. So it's in the northern country. 
It's up in Galilee, but it's in the northern country, what would have been called Samaria. So Jesus of Nazareth, we often hear him referred to that way, even though he was Jewish, Nazareth was a little small, tiny, tiny Jewish village. The thing is, in the Old Testament days, it was in the land of Samaria. So Jesus, he was not Samaritan, but he was often called as an insult a Samaritan because they're calling him a half-breed. And it was derogatory. They always did that to him, derogatory. Well, the Samaritan, now he comes. Now, I want you to see, I, I think you've probably already caught this, the Samaritan represents Jesus. Um, now, listen carefully or read carefully what we see happening here. It says in verse 33, a Samaritan who was on a journey, so he's traveling, he's coming, going from one place to another, came upon him, he finds him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. There's the charity. The part that we see from Luke, uh, or I'm sorry, from the book of Leviticus 19.18 of the Shema, where this, this lawyer asked the question, here's the charity part coming in. He felt compassion, and he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast. Okay, stop here. What have we read? There's a lot of things we just came across. Look for the who, what, when, where, why, and how. How did the Samaritan get there? It tells us. It tells us in verse 34, he was on a beast. He's riding an animal. Now, in the first century, who rides animals as they're traveling? Most people did not have donkeys, mules, things like this to, uh, to travel on. Only rich people, powerful people. So this Samaritan is coming, representing power, he is representing wealth, and he is riding this animal. So that's one thing. He's elevated where is the fallen man at this point? He's laying down on the ground dying. The Samaritan is lifted up on top of an animal. Now, the Samaritan comes, and notice that he came to him. He, he leaves his elevated position. I mean, he didn't keep riding. He leaves his place that's elevated up high on an animal and comes down to what? The level of the fallen man. That's interesting, because remember, this is portraying Christ. Do you see how Jesus is, is being represented here? Jesus was up in heaven. He left his home in glory. He came down to us. What's he do? He bandages the wounds. He heals him. Notice, too, it says that he pours on oil and wine. Ooh, here's a what question. What does oil and wine represent? What does oil and wine represent? Well, go back to the Old Testament. And you'll see examples of oil and wine being anointed or poured out at certain ceremonies. What it means, it's represent, representing the Holy Spirit. So to the Jews, pouring on oil and wine, yes, it's medicinal. There are medicinal reasons for doing this. Um, wine, of course, has alcohol in it. And the oil um, actually um, can help prevent certain types of bacteria and things and uh, from living. but he would pour on oil and wine medicinally, but what is going on? The Samaritan is the one doing this. And what does Jesus do? He's giving the Holy Spirit to the fallen man here. He gives the Holy Spirit to us. When we become Christians, God puts his spirit inside of us. Paul tells us this in the book of Corinthians. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then what's he do? He puts the fallen man that he has anointed on his own animal. 
he, in other words, he elevates. What's he doing? He's elevating the man to the position he was in. Isn't that interesting? Puts him on his own base. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. Okay, so what does the inn represent? Remember what was the question? How do we get eternal life? The inn is where this guy is healed and now is at the end of the story. Represents heaven. Who took him there? It was the Samaritan who did it. Now, notice it says in the next day he took out two denarii. A denarii, one denarii at that time period was enough to keep a person in a nice um, inn for over a month. So this is two months worth of money that's being given. And who's paying it? Now, this is so important. Who pays the price? Who came down and lifted this person up? Who's healing him? Who anoints him with the Spirit? Who does this and now pays the price? It's the Samaritan. He pays the price to the innkeeper. Who is the innkeeper? Father God pays the innkeeper. And he says, and I love this, take care of him. But here comes my favorite part of the whole story. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, you see the Samaritan is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Isn't this a fantastic um, illustration of salvation through Jesus? Remember, the whole story here, the whole point of this is how do you get eternal life? That's what this parable is about. How do you get eternal life? Now, what did the man have to do to get eternal life? He only had to accept by grace. The grace being offered. He was saved by grace. Through who? Through the person who paid it. We are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of us, and he's coming again. He paid our cost. He paid our fee to redeem us. Then Jesus goes on and concludes with, well, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy, charity. He's again answering the guy's question. He obviously knew he was not justified. The lawyer knew he was not justified. But now we see that Jesus is explaining how we are saved. Yes, if you can keep the law, if you can do the, the Shema, if you can do that, and you are perfect all your days, you have eternal life. But Satan robs us, and we are all in a dying state. So we have the Samaritan come who gives us grace. We are saved by grace. And how is this done? Through charity. God gives us charity that we don't deserve. And as the, the lawyer uh, correctly added, Leviticus 19, 18, we are to love others. How many times did Jesus say that too? So we are to show mercy towards them. Because Jesus even ends it by saying, go and do the same. Isn't that a fascinating Fascinating example of this, what this parable means and how to study it. You notice all we did was just kept asking questions like who, what, when, where, why, and how. We had to do a little research at time, had to look back at different verses and stuff. Um, commentaries help with this. But I will tell you that many commentaries don't mention this at all. 
in their commentaries on this, this parable. And again, many of them, um, for instance, the, um, a book, I was one time asked to teach a class for a college program on how to study the Bible. The first thing I did when I got this book, it was written by a college professor um, from a very prestigious Bible college and Bible Institute. And they, um, this professor there wrote this book and I was asked to teach it um, to a group of students. The first thing I did when I got the book is I opened up the cover to see what translations were they using. And I saw immediately it had the NIV. Thus I knew they're gonna be taking things out of context. And so when the class was going on and we came to this part, I said, now your book is gonna say, this is, um, there's a lot of different points to the story that do not answer the question. They break it up into so many different paragraphs. That's why it's so important to know the ancient manuscripts, what was the thesis statements for things so you don't pull things out of context. So I've showed you a lot of different things here today. One, very important, how to find out if your verses and stuff that you're studying are, if you're staying in context. New American Standard or an interlinear Bible will show you where the paragraphs are. You can find out what the thesis sentence is, thus you can find out what these verses pertain to. That's so important. And the second thing I tried to teach you today through this is use the who, what, when, where, why, and how. You don't have to do a long passage. You don't have to do a chapter. Sometimes I, I've done this with just one verse. I've spent sometimes doing a Bible study for over a week on one verse, uh, just going through this and researching what is Jesus saying here? Or what's God telling us here? And this is uh, using this who, what, when, where, why, and how is a simple, easy way to do a Bible study. It's a great thing to do as a group. And I hope you will try this. If you, um, There's other ways to do in Bible studies, but this is a really simple one, and it works great. But it, of course, before you ever start a Bible study, always ask the Holy Spirit's help. Always ask him, Lord, teach me something. Help me to see something that I can apply to my life. And I love the question to ask, how does this passage apply to my life? And we see it here. This is how we get eternal life. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this segment with us, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you have comments or questions on this, you will not see this in many, many uh, sermons and stuff taught this way because they use translations that break it up into different sections, and they have lost the, the content. They have lost the thesis statement, the original question. But when you put it all together, you can see how this all pertains to the question, the thesis question, how do I get eternal life? That's what this parable is about. So thank you for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope you will use this, and it'll help you develop a really close walk with God. So until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.